Good morning, everybody. Today, I have written out my sermon. That uh, is rare for me. You guys know I normally shoot straight from the hip, stand right here, and just like rock it out. I don't know why I've done this, but I just felt the Holy Spirit lead that way. And I think partly it's because I've been so overcome with the presence of God this morning that I would probably just lose it all. So maybe this is, this is good. Can the Holy Spirit provide guidance right here, right now? Yes. Can the Holy Spirit provide guidance last night? Yes. So we're good. And this here is water, not coffee. I'm not addicted to caffeine. Don't ask any of my colleagues who are silently sitting here if that's true or not. Uh, you, you may have noticed in this church we don't make a huge fuss out of the offering. In fact, often we almost forget it. Uh, some churches kind of preach a whole nother sermon around the offering. Um, we like to keep it simple here. We do think developing an attitude of giving is a really important thing in the life of a believer. At the same time, a lot of our leadership group have kind of felt like sometimes tithes and offerings are flogged to death, and we've been in churches where it's kind of made people feel guilty. And so we had a discussion recently, do we want to change the emphasis? Do we want to redo this? And we all agreed, no, let's just keep doing it the same way, but we can just preach on generosity at some point. So here I am. Today, you can call this one the generous God, if you're taking notes. Before creation existed at all, we know God existed as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, endlessly pouring love into one another. Though it was perfect, somehow it wasn't complete. And God says this love needs to be given away. So he creates a universe full of stars, planets, comets, celestial bodies. Too numerous and too beautiful for us to understand or comprehend. And then he creates this perfect blue ball. The absolute right distance from the sun. He dresses it in gowns of ocean and jewelry of mountain. He adds animals and plants, unique and bizarre and stunning, powerful creatures, vegetation of all shapes and sizes, colors. And at the center of this exquisite beauty, he creates a man and a woman in a garden made after his own image. And he says, here, all of this is for you. All of everything that has ever been created is a gift for the children of God, which is you and I. Oh, praise God. Mm. But, but, mankind quickly becomes greedy and selfish. And a, a culture of greed and of selfishness spreads upon the earth. And so God chooses a man to stand out from that culture. A man to be a blessing to everyone around him. Not only would this man be a blessing, but this man's children and their children. In fact, God declared he would bless this, man, this man's offspring for a thousand generations. 
and that they would be a blessing to the world around them. And we know this man's name was Abraham. And he began to learn how to be like God. He gave to those around him. He gave of his spoils of war. He gave of his abundant flocks. He gave of his energy and of his time. He gave by giving others the choicest land available. And he begins to reestablish a culture of giving on the earth, modeled after who? God, the generous God. Abraham's grandson was named Jacob. God saw fit to change his name to Israel, and from Israel came an entire nation of people invited to be givers, just as God had given and continues to give. But things got off to a rocky start for Israel as well. After a few hundred years, God leads them out of Egypt, and he gives them the greatest gift that we'd yet received, greater than the universe and created life itself. He gave them the gift of his own presence. His presence comes and inhabits the camp with the people of Israel. He leads them. He teaches them by way of his servant Moses. He gives Moses a law. A law that today, you know, includes a lot of things. Well, it includes things that today may appear strange to us, even ridiculous. But in the law, we can also see God's heart of generosity. When the writer of Leviticus says that the Israelites must pour out a grain offering, we are reminded that none of us would have grain at all if God hadn't created plant life on the third day of creation. When an Israelite develops a skin disease and must offer two pigeons as a sacrifice, we're reminded that no one would have been able to become clean from their defilement if God hadn't given us birds on the fifth day of creation. And of course, no one would be able to sacrifice a lamb if God hadn't made man and the animals on the day six. I think that's the best way to read Leviticus, by the way. If Leviticus is dry and boring to you, then let it be a reminder that God has pre-provided everything necessary for that law to be fulfilled. And you will fall in love with the Father in Leviticus. We also see in the law God's awareness of the depravity of our hearts. And he gifts, he gifts to us solutions and plans to limit the evil that we're so easily capable of. When the writer of Exodus says, to take an eye for an eye, we need to understand that that's not a command to maim someone in revenge. That is a limitation placed upon the vengeance that God knows we're going to want to take out on each other. An eye for an eye and no further. I can't kill Adam for putting out my eye. I can only put out his eye. That's as far as we're allowed to go. And that's, that was extremely countercultural from the world around it. God puts limits on our freedom so that we can flourish within. And he builds freedom into the law itself. Leviticus 25 prescribes that every 50 years, all slaves must be freed, and all land that has been rented or borrowed must be returned to its original owner. 
God knows that we're greedy, and he knows that we tend to hoard our possessions and exploit one another. So he puts a limit on the economic and labor exploitation that he knows we're going to commit against one another if given the chance. The year of the Jubilee, the scales are rebalanced, the captives are set free. Paradoxically, the law is impossible for us to keep. But God doesn't give bad gifts. So even in that impossibility of the law, there's a foreshadowing of another gift that's to come. Yeah? So time moves on. God's people, Israel, practice being like their generous God. Sometimes they're good at it, but mostly they're not. Eventually, they cause such grief to God and to the nations around them. Rather than being a blessing to everyone on earth, they become a curse. And it says Israel sinned greater than anybody else. And so they are mostly destroyed by foreign superpowers. God continues giving time and time again rescue, restoration, another chance. I will not give you any more chances. I will blot you out. And then he gives more chances, more chances, more chances, more grace, grace. And the cycle continues. So, eventually, God's presence comes back to the people of Israel. This time, not as a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud, but unfathomably as a human being. God's greatest gift to mankind. The mysterious beeping at the back of the room. We thank him for all his gifts. God's greatest gift to mankind. The marriage of divinity and humanity in one person. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God himself. Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so we get to see in Christ what God looks like when he's among us. He gives dignity. The wedding in Cana is first miracle. He gives incredible dignity and wine, far too much wine. He gives health. He gives hope. He gives people a future. He gives freedom to a little girl and to Lazarus. He gives life itself. He gives and gives and gives and gives. And the disciples, they squabble. And they say, well, who's, who, do, who gets to sit beside you in, in your kingdom? And so he gets on their feet, on his knees and washes their feet. Gives and gives and gives. He stands up in the Jewish synagogue and to all the assembled people, slaves, free people, landowners, everybody, you know, priests and, and the religious elite who weren't meant to be landowners. We'll come back to that. It's connected to tithing. But they'd become rich and proud and in their midst, Jesus stands up and he reads from the book of Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, 
to, the, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, much like Davy is fastening that thing to the wall. Thank you, my friend. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. (laughs) And he said to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is not just declaring the year of the Jubilee, though obviously that's what he's quoting from and referring to, where where all this economic rebalancing and freedom would take place. But he's declaring a Jubilee kingdom. And through his life and death and resurrection, he invites everybody to start living in that Jubilee kingdom right now. Not long later, Jesus gives to us again, and he gives us the clearest picture we've yet received of what God is truly like. For all of history, we've tried to understand it. We've tried to figure out what God is like, what he wants, what he expects, what he feels about us. Is he trustworthy? Is he still angry about the garden and how we screwed up? Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, climbs onto a cross and allows human hands to nail him there and murder him. And this is what God looks like. Naked, crushed, and broken for the very people doing the crushing. Offering himself as a gift to say, this is what God is like. He will never lift a hand against you. He has only ever given you everything. And he doesn't stop there. Jesus dies and descends into the grave and defeats death itself so he can give all of us life and life eternal. And God the Father isn't finished giving. He gives his Son a new, glorious, resurrected body. And Jesus meets with his friends and gives them quite a surprise. And he also gives them breakfast on the beach. That's nice. Fish and chips cooked by Christ the Lord himself. And he gives Peter a mission for his life. Peter who just keeps screwing it up over and over and over again. And he gives him a mission. He says, you know, care for my sheep. Build my church on this rock. He gives Cleopas and his friends, heart and his friend, hearts that burn as they walk on the road to Emmaus. And then he returns to his father. And a short while later, God gives us all perhaps the second greatest gift that he's given, his Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that inhabited Christ to come and inhabit every one of us. God made flesh. God made, remade into human flesh again, not as a single man, but in the community of men and women called by his name, 
submitted to his lordship. The community entering the Jubilee kingdom. The Jubilee kingdom of freedom and generosity where there is no exploitation. And within a few years, we begin to see what humans made in the image of God do when they give to the world around them the same way God has given to them. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Like, that passage of Scripture is mind-blowingly encompassing. We have signs and wonders. We have uh, evangelism and the church growing. We have people gathering in the temple courts. We have the believers gathering in their homes. And we have them gathering money and giving away and specifically no one being in need. The manifestation of the kingdom is intrinsically part of giving and generosity. And it has an economic impact in the world around us. And then, of course, Acts 4, 32 to 37. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Again, it's all in there. The testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the giving of everything we have. The early church, uh, the early church relied on a document uh, called the Didache, the teaching of the 12 apostles which is not a biblical document. It's kind of like the first Christian writing. We all love to read Christian books. Didache is the first. It says at one point, you shall not hesitate to give, nor shall you grumble when giving, for you will know who is the good paymaster of the reward. You shall not turn away from someone in need, but shall share everything with your brother and sister, and do not claim that anything is your own. For if you are sharers in what is imperishable, how much more so should we be givers in perishable things? And the world began to take notice. Scripture actually says, these believers who have turned the world upside down, uh, Julian, Julian the emperor of Rome, 300 years after the life of Christ, <laughs> writes to a pagan Roman priest complaining, 
And he says, it is disgraceful that when no Jew has to beg, and these impious Galileans, that is Christians, support not only their own poor, but our poor as well, all men see our people lack aid from us. And the, the whole thing that happens there is, is Julian is trying to get the, he's called Julian the Apostate, and, and kind of in name he was a believer, but he's trying to revive Roman religion. And, he, and he's like, economically we have a problem because the Christians have developed an incredible reputation because they just give and give and give and give. So pagan priests, could we do some of that too? Like, it seems to be working for them. The early Christians turned the world upside down by giving away everything they had. They, their giving turned heads and their giving turned hearts. Their giving identified them as lovers of God and it drew others into that kingdom. So, some churches teach tithing. And you know what? You, you can tithe if you want. We don't, we don't really teach tithing. We would invite you to be made into the image of God together and to learn the same way that God gives everything, always. The tithing was put in place by God for his people Israel, let's say as training wheels, I would say. His priests and his worshipers were not to own land for themselves, but to worship God at his temple day and night. To accomplish that, the rest of the nation paid a tenth of their produce, their grain, their livestock. And if they couldn't bring their livestock, then they could cash it in for money and bring the money. And all of that provided for the priests, for the Levites, for the worshipers. It provided for upkeep of the temple where God would be made welcome. So, you know, if 10 of you who make fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year would like to give a tenth of your income so that we can cover Adam and Al, go ahead. It's wonderful. But God no longer lives in a temple made of stone. He lives in temples made of flesh. And there's no longer a priestly group who makes sacrifices on behalf of us. We are all made priests by our own high priest, Jesus Christ. And we are all invited to self-sacrifice and take up our cross, like God does. And there's no longer an eye for an eye. There is instead, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. There's no longer a jubilee year where the scales are rebalanced. Instead, there is a jubilee king upon a jubilee throne of a jubilee kingdom of which you and I are invited to sit on little thrones as well. All of this stuff that we used to do to try and please God, to obtain his favor to convince him to come close to us, Paul, who was once Saul, well, trivia, his name is still Saul. The Bible doesn't say God changed his name. It's just that Paul is a Greek word and Saul is a Hebrew word, putting that out there. The most knowledgeable of these guys, he's an expert in the law of the Jews, and he calls all that stuff dung, excrement, poop. We now make up the body of Christ and all of that old stuff. It has passed from the body. I'm a children's pastor. It would not be okay if I didn't make a poop joke this morning. But Philippians 3.8, 
uh, in the Passion Translation reads, to truly know him meant letting go of everything from my past and throwing all my boasting on the garbage heap. It's all like a pile of manure to me now so that I may be enriched in the reality of knowing Jesus and embrace him as Lord in all of his greatness. So, that's us. That's, that's our journey. And Adam and Amy and all of us, we invite you guys to just grow with us as, as a community, as, as people as we all journey into the fullness of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. To live the way God lives and to give the way God gives. To give what? To give our time, our energy, to give of our surplus, and also to give of our lack. To give of our love and to give of our joy and to give of our willingness to bear sadness with others as well. To give our money, to give our lives. To whom? To give to one another, to give to our friends, to give to the community, to give to people here in the church, people in this congregation who are in need. To give in the offering so that we can pay a salary for Adam and Amy, so we can pay, pay, pay for renting this place, so that we can gather together, so we can practice, so we can grow, so we, can, we give a portion of all this back up to catch the fire, so they can plant more churches, so we can keep growing, keep giving to give to the poor of this city, to give to the homeless, to give to the orphan, the fatherless, and the widow, to give to those abroad in time of disaster, to give to the stranger, and even to give to those we would consider our enemies. Right at the beginning of Scripture, there's this question where God asks of Cain, where's your brother? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? And it's like all of the arc of Scripture and the narrative of God's history with man is answering that question for our greedy hearts. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. And so the self-righteous Jew says, but, but who is my neighbor? And the Spirit of God says, everyone, everyone, everyone. So why, why give? Because God has given us everything. That we might know that he is good and trustworthy. That we might place our trust and hope in him. And not in our own resources. Not in our own salaries. Our own ability to provide for ourselves. That we would cast all of our cares and all of our trust upon the Lord and walk by faith and not by sight and grow as individuals and grow as a community into the fullness of the stature of Christ that we might turn the world upside down by our generosity that the whole world might know that God is a generous God let's pray Father, who has given us everything,
We worship you. We honor you. We stand or kneel in awe of your goodness. And we humbly submit ourselves in and of ourselves. We are not worthy. But you have dignified us with your love, with your gifts. God, words fail. But we offer you back everything that we have to give. Take our hearts. Take our fears. The things that we can put on the altar are kind of shameful. But somehow it's a pleasing aroma to you when we put ourselves on the altar. God, we ask that you would give us your heart your generous heart that you would help us become like you would you help us give the way you give if you're here today and you've never uh, given your life to Jesus if you've never made him the Lord of your life then I would invite you to consider that the first gift you give back to God. And it still pretty much applies for all of us. We can give God our autonomy. We can give God our self-rule and acknowledge Jesus is the only worthy Lord of our lives. God, we give you our lives. The good news is God gives it all back. And like Garland said, more than we could possibly imagine.